0: Hi everybody, good evening, Friday Night Live, it is the 20th of May, 2022, and uh, I'm going to explain it all for you tonight. Great to spend a Friday night with Stefan. That's right, I just wish we could also spend Saturday morning. It's that great pickup line from when I was younger. Hi, how you doing? How about breakfast? Should I call you or nudge you? Sorry, I used to be able to do that better. Can't think of a better thing to do on a Friday. Can't beat philosophy with a stick. You can beat it with hemlock occasionally, though, but you can't beat it with a stick. So, I wanted to explain the world to you. Like, I know that sounds kind of annoying. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But pretty much, truth, like a disco ball, every, time, every angle you come at it from, you're going to get something important. And I like switching the views, sort of rotating the melon, so to speak. To the part where the frat boy hasn't had his way with an apple core and a microwave. But I wanted to tell you why we're going insane. Like, why are we in the West as a society going insane? Now, I don't have to get into any specifics. We all know the insanity that's floating around. Why? You know, the wokeness and all, right? People think it's an intellectual thing. It's not an intellectual thing. It's an effect of something else. And I sort of wanted to get to the root and the core of what it is, in fact, the root of. And I'm going to do my studious best. I'll probably fail, because you guys are just so interesting, fascinating, I tell you. So I'll probably fail, but I'm going to try and avoid the questions until I finish the speech. This is what I would be doing in public were I allowed out of the house. So... Why are we going insane? Why are we losing our grip on reality? Why are we inhabiting a psychosis? So, I want you to think of infinity. Do you have it yet? (laughs) All encapsulated? Of course, we have words for things we cannot conceive of. Infinity is one of them. We can't conceive of infinity. But I do remember being on a hike with a friend of mine who's a brilliant mathematician and another friend of mine who's a brilliant economist. This is before we were all, what, I was, I was, before I was a philosopher, before they were a mathematician and an economist, and having a debate about what infinity divided by infinity was. And my friend, the mathematician-to-be, said, infinity divided by infinity is infinity. And I said, don't, don't, don't agree with you. <laughs> don't believe it. And he said, I want you to think of an infinite space and infinitely long poles, and those infinitely, how many infinitely long poles can fit into an infinite 3D space? And I said, well, there's an infinity of them, but that's cheating. <laughs> he said, what do you mean that's cheating? I said, that's cheating. Because you have infinite space, which is three dimensions, and then you have infinite poles, but they're not infinite except in length. They're not infinite in height or width. So you're not comparing apples to apples. That's not infinity divided by infinity. And that is how we whiled away the evening <laughs> while we were uh, hiking. And... So now, infinity divided by infinity, I mean, tautologically, is is one. So, I want you to think of infinity, and there's two poles. One pole is sanity, and one pole is madness. And super sanity, the kind of sanity that we don't have, except maybe in our social circles, our philosophical circles, our circles of trust and reason and evidence, I want you to think of infinity in terms of sanity and madness. And I will tell you, what the difference is: An infinity in principles is sanity. An infinity in principles is sanity. I'll get into that in a second. But an infinity in resources is madness. An infinity in principles is sanity, an infinity in resources is madness. So what is an infinity? In principles, well, it's when you take your principles and truly universalize them. That's uh, science, that's philosophy, that's logic. Morality is universal in its essence, and if you doubt that, you can read either Universally Preferable Behavior, my free book, or Essential Philosophy, my free book. But morals are infinite. They are universal. They go on forever, across all time, across all space, and so on, right? Scientific principles... Speed of light is constant across the universe. Gravity is constant across the universe. Fission and fusion are constant across the universe, the properties of atoms, electromagnetism, and so on. These are all infinite and eternal across the universe. Now, when I say infinite, I don't mean that the universe is infinite, but what I mean is that there is no place where in the universe these laws do not apply. It's infinite and as far as needs possibly be, with 100 billion galaxies, with 100 billion stars apiece, right? I still think that doesn't add up to Elon Musk's pocket change. But anyway, so the laws of physics are infinite. They are eternal. Because if you do an experiment yesterday, if you do it the next day and it's different, you don't say, well, the laws of physics must have changed, right? You say, well, there was some error in the procedure, so, an infinity of principles is sanity. Do we Hit me with a Y if that makes sense to you, that an infinity of principles is sanity. Logic, reason, science, morality. Okay, we're getting some Ys. One N. Laws of math. Thank you. Perfect. Absolutely. You know, I knew there was one that I was forgetting, and you all come to my rescue as usual. The laws of math are also, Yes. Numbers are infinite. You don't do numbers in India and then come over to America and the numerical system is totally different, right? So, sanity is universality and infinity of principles, of concepts, where they are, yeah, universal, oh, universal versus infinite. They are two sides of the same coin. They really, it's two ways of saying the same thing. Universal is everywhere, at all times, under all circumstances, and infinite basically means the same thing. So, if we are in a giant heartbeat of a collapsing universe, then everywhere we could possibly record the laws of physics, the laws of physics will be valid. And so, they're infinite for all practical purposes. Because everywhere, if we could go somehow beyond the universe, whatever that would even mean, then... The laws of physics would have to apply there, because you simply like you go to Mars. The laws of universe, the laws of the uh, physics apply. In fact, when they sent that probe past past uh, Pluto, however many decades it took, it passed by within a minute or two of when they anticipated. That's how universal these absolutes are. Okay, let me just make sure that I'm getting all this right. Take Intro to Calculus. I don't know if that's to be or to someone else. Okay, so this, this makes sense, right? So an infinity of principles is sanity, because I don't say that universally preferable behavior, it could be called infinitely preferable behavior, but that would be confusing, because the infinitely would be like in terms of preference. Universally preferable behavior simply says that a moral law is not contained by location, it's not contained by time, it's not contained by opinion. It's not contained by emotion, right? Universal is universal. I mean, if you're looking at radiation coming from the sun, it's going to hit your skin and do its thing, regardless of whether you like it or don't like it, uh, regardless of whether you're in Portugal or in Spain. or like, it's, it's universal, right? And we know that universality is the case with biology, because we can dig up carbon-based life forms from tens or hundreds of millions of years ago and so on. So the laws of biology, the laws of physics, the laws of matter and energy and morality, these are all universal. And the more universal we make them, the saner we are. Because wherever you stop your universality, there you introduce madness. I'm not kidding about this. Wherever you stop your universality of principles, there you introduce madness. So, if you have a location where reason and evidence and science does not apply, and you believe that that is true and real and valid, then that is a pocket of madness within you. right? So, how do we know daily life from nightly dreams? Daily life has universal principles, nightly dreams do not. Like Nightly dreams constantly violate the laws of time and space, location, physics, consequentialism. You, like You can jump off the ground and float into the sky, all of these things, right? Now, if you genuinely believe that your dreams are real, then that would be an area of madness for you. So, if you say that no one can walk on water except for Bob in Peterborough at 2 o'clock in the morning on a Thursday. Okay, then, Peterborough, 2 o'clock in the morning on a Thursday is a place where you believe that the impossible can happen and madness is truth. And a lot, I mean, philosophy and, and science and all of this is pushing, pushing back the madness of prehistory so that principles can continue and go wider, right? All men are endowed with certain inalienable rights by their creator, Okay, well, the creator is not necessarily the most rational, philosophical, empirical entity, but all men are endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. This is how slavery was ended. All human beings have or manifest self-ownership, and you can't own yourself and have somebody else own you at the same time. That's like saying if you buy a car, that both you and the car dealership own the car at the same time. That can't really be possible legally or morally, right? So, when we start as a species, we are superstitious, we are feelings-based, and our perspective is all that matters. Our limited perspective is all that matters, right? The earth looks flat, the sun and the moon look the same size, and so on, right? And if we eat particular magic mushrooms or peyote or mescaline or whatever, then we get particular visions, which in the modern world... With the same perspective, we say, ah, well, those visions you see, that's chemicals messing with your perceptions, right? But more primitive personalities view that as a portal that you have opened up and gone through into an alternate dimension where evil reigns. And you understand it's uh, not the most self-disciplined approach. I mean, I have a, um, I mean, I'm telling you, check out my new book, available uh, for now, uh, only for subscribers uh, to freedomain.com and uh, locals, uh, and unauthorised uh, TV. They all get in that ahead of time, and I must have recorded a good seven hours of the audiobook so far. And I think, and and it what's happened so far in the book is nothing compared to what's coming. So my imagination is very strong, and the only way that my imagination stays disciplined is to recognise what is real and what is not when I go into a novel. When I go into a role play, as you've heard me do, I'm sure, a lot of times with listeners in call-in shows, I've really let myself go into alternate worlds, worlds that do not exist. I mean, I have a written, written a science fiction novel about the beauty of the future. It takes place half a millennia from here, and I have to see it down to the last detail. I, I understand how it all works. I have to—everyone's carrying—so I'm in an unreal world. And I'm very disciplined about that. And one of the reasons I can let my imagination run so wild is I never have any concern that it's going to overwhelm me and block my access to mundane, practical, sane, rational, empirical reality. So, wherever you say, here's where universalism and eternity, infinity, here's where it stops, and beyond that is something else, You've created a pocket of madness, not out there in the universe, but in your own mind. Like Plato's world of forms, right? That there's a perfect chair, a perfect table, a perfect microphone, a perfect forehead. And you see all these things floating in the ether before you're born. And then, by golly, when you get born, your memory of that perfect cup that you saw before you were born impinges on the cup that you see in the mundane world. And that's how you know it's a cup. The cupness is a real thing. The essence of the uh, of of the object, the concept is a real thing out there, which you see, but like all of that, that's creating a massive pocket of pure insanity in the human mind. And so many philosophers work and work and work to create these pockets of absolute festering insanity in the human mind. You can see this with, what was it, Hegel's world spirit. There's a world spirit, and sometimes that world spirit, which is manifesting humanity to the overman, little bit of Nietzsche there, that the world spirit chooses sometimes a particular country, a particular race, and uses it to express its will of domination over the rest of the world. Great thing to tell Germans. Well, that, you see, world spirit capturing nations and using it to advance the spirit of godhood by having those nations conquer other nations. Fantastically helpful for the psychotic rulers who want to murder for posterity. But it creates a, an, a massive pocket of madness. And madness is always supported by aggression, right? This is modern woke stuff. It's all about, we are going to force you to say absurd things that go against reason, and we will break you on a wheel if you don't obey. And, and once they force you to say insane things, unless you're very alert, then they... They've, they've broken you, right? They force you like to denounce, like, oh, I, I believe these things that are absurd. I mouth these things that are absurd. Well, that's the whole point, is to break your integrity, and it's a mere exercise in power. It's it's kiss the ring, right? Kiss the ring stuff of the, uh, the criminal. So the advancement of the species of, of morality, of humanity, is to continue to push back against the insane pockets or encroaching madness of subjectivism and relativism, and you do that with universal principles. So hopefully that makes sense. So that is universality or infinity in principle. Infinity of principle is sanity. Okay, so let's go to the other side of the coin, literally the coin or the fiat coin. Infinity of resources is madness. Let's start with something kind of mundane. Do you... Hit me with a why if you've ever known someone who was driven kind of crazy through an excess of beauty, an excess of talent, an excess of money, an excess of popularity, an excess of fame... An excess of success. An excess of success with women or an excess of attractiveness to men. Have you ever known anyone who's gone mad to one degree or another because of too much, too much of something or other? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. If you have a second, give me a couple of details. Have, of, of the people you've seen, I mean, my mother went quite mad from beauty, She's a very beautiful woman. My, uh, I've had friends who went quite mad from an excess of cynicism. I have friends who went uh, crazy from an excess of humility to the point where they self-erased. I have friends who went crazy from a sudden inheritance. I have a friend who just got a... Huge sum of money, out of nowhere, and uh, it was not good for him. I I write about this, actually, in my novel, Just Poor. You should get that novel. Again, it's free, justpoornovel.com. I was just talking about this with a guy who's checking the audiobook with the book. And he was saying, well, why did this terrible scene occur? And I said, because egalitarianism always leads to murder. One guy I knew from high school became so mad from being a so-called Chad, he became a drug-dealing rapist. It's it's the Amber Heard thing, right? It's the Angelina Jolie thing, right? It's the Johnny Depp thing to some degree as well, right? Which is an excess. Like um, Amber Heard was considered to have a perfect face when she was younger, right? And, you know, she's looking a little chunk now, um, 36 or whatever it is, plus, you know, she's not sleeping, stress of the trial and all that's pretty pretty awful. And Johnny Depp was one of the most gorgeous human beings when he was younger, and now he looks like a pirate's skinned knee begging for change on a sidewalk corner. Beauty and wealth calls two different people constant unearned attention, seem to really inflate their egos. Yeah. It happens with people who get, in particular, the unearned. The beauty is, to a large degree, unearned. Even physique, to some degree, can be unearned. Like, there are some people who... Uh, I remember talking to a woman many years ago when I was on vacation. She had a fantastic figure. And she's like, and this is me, I, I don't do anything. Like, she, I was playing volleyball with her, and she's like, oh, yeah, this is me, this is me. Like, I'm not even, I haven't even worked out in a year. Just curvy and everything in the right place. Yeah. And she said, if I actually work out, it's insane. And so, yeah, just, right. Elizabeth Holmes, yeah, tried to take advantage of her beauty. I wouldn't necessarily say beauty, but, I mean, she was a solid eight and a half, but in the tech world, that's 20 (laughs) or something like that. So, okay, so. You know the basic principle of economics. All human desires are infinite. All resources are finite. You always want a faster computer. You always want to live longer. You always want to be a stronger or fitter or more flexible. You always want to have more money. You always have, want to have better things and want more time. Like all of our human desires are infinite, right? But all resources are finite. Now, the infinity of human desires compared to the finite nature of resources is why there is the science of economics, right? It's like cost-benefit analysis and all that, right? And our failure to teach and process cost-benefit analysis may very well have fundamentally wrecked our civilization. I mean, straight up, right? And I, I was talking about this in April of 2020. Like, I broke the whole COVID thing at the beginning of 2020 because of a friend of mine in Hong Kong who was telling me China's Chernobyl is on its way. And by early April, I think it was early, late March or early April, I was basically saying that the lockdowns are a disaster because there's no cost-benefit analysis. Lockdowns will be a disaster because there's no cost-benefit analysis. Everyone's just saying, well, we'll lock down. And nobody said, okay, so if we lock down, it's going to be hard to unlock down and... What's going to happen to surgeries? What's going to happen to dental care? What's going to happen to alcoholics? What's going to happen to kids who might be stuck home with abusive parents? What's going to happen to drug addicts? What's going to happen to children's education and social skills and, 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 right? And I posted an article on freedomain.locals.com, which you should really check out. It's free to join. About the unbelievably horrible effects that the lockdowns have had on children, which of course was very... Predictable. And of course I grew up my whole life saying, Well, we should privatise healthcare and people saying, Oh my God, there's so many people dependent and desperate on healthcare. You can't possibly privatize healthcare because everyone needs their healthcare. And then in Canada, like right here in Canada, it was like, Oh, no, turns out funny story. We can basically cancel healthcare for eighteen months and it's totally fine. The lockdown seemed like a mini dark age. Yeah. Yeah, lockdowns were disastrous. Which was utterly predictable, and you knew that they'd be disastrous because there was no cost-benefit analysis. There was no debate. Debate, in fact, was shut down. Anybody who said we shouldn't lock down got into got banned or things like that from social media, right? So there should have been, you know, robust debates, eight-hour debates from different epidemiologists and healthcare and politicians and economists, and there should have been okay. Here's here's the benefits. Here's the costs. Uh, here's how many lives we might save. Here's many how many lives we might cost. But Because we have a very much dumbed-down population, it's like everyone thinks there's a solution without a cost. There is no solution without a cost. Should you save your money? Should you spend your money? There's no answer to that. Everyone's like, stack sats and stay humble. There's no answer as to whether you should keep your bitcoins or not. I mean, if you're 80, spend them and enjoy your life. (laughs) There's no answer. There's no answer. Should you exercise or should you sit on the couch? There's no answer. Everything is a cost-benefit. Everything is a trade-off. Should you go to bed early or go to bed late? Maybe you'll have a great deal of fun staying up late. Maybe you'll be tired in the morning. Maybe you'll go to bed early and find out that you can't sleep and you might as well have gone out and had fun and then you just, you know, wrecked the whole thing. Should you buy a house or should you rent an apartment? There's no answer to that. Well, increasingly, in the depopulation agenda called let's keep houses away from young people by making them too expensive, um, it's not even a question. But in the past, you'd have the choice. Should you buy a house, or should you rent an apartment? no answer to that, because if you rent an apartment, you could take the money you'd put on a down payment on a house, and you could invest it and buy something that will be a value, right? Or you could, you know, buy the house, should you buy a house, or should you invest in the stock market? Oh, we should invest in the stock market, good returns on your investment, well, until recently, it's like, okay, but if you invest in the stock market, where are you going to live? <laughs> it's not likely your stockbroker is going to put you up, so, because we don't train Children, and I think this has a little bit to do with gynocentric education, right? Women not quite as good at the cost-benefit analysis, which is why the major, vast majority of student debt is held by women. Not Women not as good as the cost-benefit analysis because women can often nag or complain or seduce or entice men to provide them resources. Men can't exactly, you know, put on makeup, uh, go out into the forest and have a deer lie down to be to be eaten, right? That's just not. <laughs> we can't we can't nag fruit trees into producing fruit. We have to actually go out and do. The practical, empirical work of gaining resources, we can't just complain and seduce our way into getting stuff. So, we don't understand really cost-benefit analysis anymore, so what happens is we careen from disaster to disaster, and by the time those disasters show up, we're on to the next disaster. What is the cost-benefit analysis of sending billions and billions of dollars of weapons into a war zone? Some of which will legit be used to armed neo-Nazis of that, there is no question. So, cost-benefit analysis is why we have infinite desires and finite resources. So, what happens when human beings get infinite resources? Right. Remember, infinity of principle, sanity. Infinity of resources, what happens? This is all back to the woke stuff. Why is this infin- insanity roiling like some lava-based tsunami across the mental landscape because of debt, because of money printing, because of money creation. The money creation gives you the impression of infinite, it gives you the delusion of infinite resources. When you have the delusion of infinite resources, you are no longer whipped and cornered and disciplined by actual brute base reality. Actual base brute reality when you have infinite resources you don't have it used to the debate used to be called guns or butter right that if you invest in arms armaments military then you have less butter for the population guns or butter and everyone you know back in the day I'm talking about the teens the 20s the 30s of last century and people said well we need more military Okay, well, then there'll be less butter. Because we're going to tax people, they won't be able to afford butter. Maybe they'll have to go to margarine or something like that, or axle grease. Well, but I repeat myself. So... We don't have that, and we haven't really had that, certainly since... Most countries went off the explicit gold standard in the First World War and then in the 70s, in particular America, the convertibility to gold was gone. And then you got the true takeoff of the welfare warfare state where they said, well, we can give trillions of dollars to the poor and we can give trillions of dollars to the military and we can have hundreds of billions of dollars of foreign aid and we can have massive amounts of old-age pensions. You know, to all the people, just by the by. To all the people who were like, well, I don't want to have kids. It's like, okay then who's going to pay for your pension? Oh, other people's kids are going to pay for your pension, you selfish git! I want an old-age pension that has to be paid for by the next generation, but I don't want to actually be bothered to create and raise the next generation. So I guess I'll just fasten my sycophantic fangs onto the jugulars of other people's children and hose them dry. Now, kids, who's going to pay for your retirement? So we don't have to think about these things, right? Because there's this illusion of infinite resources. Now, you can say, well, you know, they're not printing a trillion dollars a person. I get all of that. I understand that. But the illusion of infinite resources. So what is it that makes people go insane, right? So $40 billion in aid to Ukraine. $44 billion in aid to to Americans under COVID was rejected, I think, on the same day. But $40 billion of aid to Ukraine, I think they just tacked on another $800 million. And all the people saying to Elon Musk, hey, man, that 44000000000 billion you're paying for Twitter could end world hunger. It's like, what about the $40 billion going to Ukraine? Crickets, crickets, crickets. So, what is that? I don't know, 700 bucks per American, I don't know, something like that, right? So, If you go to people and say, we need, I need 700 bucks from you to send to Ukraine, okay, then that's not the delusion of infinite resources. But if it's just like, well, we need to go help these poor Ukrainians battling against this evil empire, Vlad the Impaler lookalike, Vladimir Putin, do you support? It's like, well, it costs you nothing to support. Because of the illusion of infinite resources. Nobody's coming into your bank account. Nobody's coming to take your money. Nobody's coming to take your couch. Nobody's coming to take your TV, saying, "But well, we've got to sell this to mine. infinite resources. And that's what virtue signaling is. Virtue signaling is not just an emotional thing. Right? Virtue signaling is, it costs you nothing to take this moral stance. So when people say, I support the welfare state. Okay. Compared to what? You support the welfare state, but nobody's coming to take $2,000 a month or $5,000, sorry, $2,000 a year or $5,000 a year from you to pay for the welfare state. You don't get to keep that money either. So they just print or create or borrow money to pay for the welfare state. So it costs you nothing. It costs you nothing in your mind. Like, okay, there's inflation, 18 months, I think about 18 months it takes for inflation to kick in when you have a massive expansion in the money supply. So it costs you nothing. So you can say all of this stuff and are you in favor of people breathing? Yeah, sure. Not taking my oxygen. So, when human beings, like how did how did we evolve? We evolved with massive struggle, we evolved with scarce resources. That's how we evolved. That's what our brains are wired for. Scarce resources, right? And for the 150,000 plus years of base homo sapiens, that's what we struggled with. We have an instinctive sense of calories in and calories out. So hunting evolved to the point where, of course, it costs fewer calories to hunt and get the food than you could get from the food. All animals are like this. All animals have to do that calculation, which is why... A, a wolf, and this is why wolves get tired when they're chasing rabbits. They get tired at around the same time or just before the time that they would end up getting fewer calories from the rabbit than they're, they're expending in pursuing the rabbit. So it's a net loss and it's bad. So this is why like the lactic acid kicks in and why they stop running after the rabbit. You'll stop running after the rabbit because... The rabbit might give you 500 calories, but you're spending 600 calories to get the rabbit. So you're net loss, right? Same thing with hunting. This is why some hunters, you know, do that patient thing where they just wait, like trap spiders and so on, like both humans and, and animals, right? Just a waiting thing, right? Or that anglerfish fish that spits the water at the mosquito larva or something like that, grabs it on the way down. Or you can even see pictures of birds using bread to catch fish. So... Cheetahs as well, the burst of speed thing, right? The burst of speed is to make sure that not more calories end up being expended in the pursuit of food than you get from the food. And this is the big thing from agriculture, right? Because hunting is uncertain, and agriculture has uncertainty, of course. Anybody who's had a garden knows that. But it has less uncertainty. It has less uncertainty than hunting, which is why agricultural societies tend to do, have more stable population growth and so on, right? You can read The 10,000-Year Explosion, I think it was called. I think I interviewed the author some years ago, but it's a, it's a good book and well worth, well worth reading. So, we all do this calculation. I will lose calories if I don't have a fire because I'll have to use extra calories to keep warm, right? So, building a fire is a form of eating, in that it reduces calorie loss. Obviously, eating reduces calorie loss in a net sense by getting food, replenishing. But heat, if it's cold, heat, a jacket, the skin of an animal, whatever it is, is a form of eating because you are reducing the calories that you need to heat your body by externalizing the heat source to the fire. So is it worth gathering the firewood to heat? wherever you are. Also, it might keep animals away. Also, it might draw animals to you. But is it worth going to gather the firewood to get your fire going? Depends. If the fire is, firewood is really scattered or wet, or, well, you won't bother because you won't be net positive for calories. So calorie management, all about the winter, right? So in the winter, you can't get calories from the environment in a cold climate, really. So what do you do? Well, you store up calories in the form of food that you can keep over the winter and then eat it slowly. I'll I'll give you another example of a human cannibal called me. When I got sick recently, I ate 10 pounds of my own body because I couldn't keep any food down, right? I couldn't keep any food down, wasn't hungry. I had like a piece of toast a day. Uh, I had lots of water to sort of flush out the bug and I ate my own ass, (laughs) right? I mean, I ate my own uh, muffin top, a little bit of back fat and... I snacked on myself in order to stay alive. That's why a little bit of extra weight is not really the worst thing in the world. Because if you get sick and that's the situation, you don't end up eating your own muscles or internal organs. I had a little bit of little bit of food, right? Uh, I, I can I was the food. I ate myself. So we have evolved with the empirical life or death limitation of calories and shelter and food and and so on right also i mean if you look at it this way as well for men the supply of eggs you can impregnate is very limited right because you've got to get a woman who's single whose boyfriend isn't going to kill you uh who is attracted to you who's willing to have your baby and stay with you and raise your baby and then your baby's got to be popular enough to have a baby as well uh, in time and so on right which is why the parents who let their kids get fat and be unappealing is like my God, there's one thing you've got to teach your child is how to be likable. And uh, I am, I would say, one of the great human experts in being likable and unlikable. <laughs> there's very little in the middle. You love me, you hate me. There's really not much in the middle. And uh, so we have grown up in a situation of scarcity, we've evolved in a situation of scarcity, scarcity of calories, scarcity of heat, of shelter, scarcity of reproductive options, at least for men. For women, of course, much easier. And so an infinity of resources, what does it do? What does it do for us when we can gain things with no expenditure of effort? Well, it puts us in the realm of magic. And the realm of magic is the realm of madness. Right? The realm of magic is the realm of madness because magic is impossible things, and believing in impossible things is madness. It is madness. Like, think of hypochondria. It's the one that I'm most familiar with because of my mother. So, if you think of hypochondria, hypochondria is everything's going to make you sick. There are germs everywhere. uh, Everything you touch, everyone you're in in with, anyone who coughs in your vicinity, you're going to get sick. Now, is that true? No, it's not true. I mean, it's true if you have some massive immune suppressant or immune deficiency or whether you're immunocompromised in some way. But, you know, that's not the... If you're worried about germs and you're immunocompromised, you're not a hypochondriac. A hypochondriac is somebody who believes that he or she's going to get sick without any evidence that that's the case, Uh, any more so than anyone else. So hypochondria is believing in imminent illness with no proof. There's no reason, there's no evidence behind it, right? So you're believing that the germs are magic. That they're gonna zoop, target you, go for you, that you're uniquely vulnerable to illness when the doctor tells you your immune system's working fine. So you believe that the germs, the bacilli, the viruses, they're magic. The bacteria is magic. It can just get through you and burrow through you and by- bypass your defenses. Your city is open to the Spartans, whatever, right? Makes me think of Harry Potter. Yes, I did a whole review of, of Harry Potter. Yeah, Harry Potter is uh, insane. And Harry Potter is in an insane asylum, right? He He's violent and he's abusive and he's destructive and he harms his stepbrother and he is then institutionalized in an insane asylum which he believes is a wizard school <laughs> where impossible things happen. He's a center of attention and everyone loves him. It's a violent child's descent into malignant narcissism and utter psychotic fantasy. It's a horrible story in that way. So, if you think of other... I just did a listener call today with a guy whose girlfriend, past girlfriend, was severely agoraphobic, like could not go outside. Yeah, she had been um, horribly sexually abused as a child, but she had a belief in the danger of the outside world. The danger of the outside world was that someone was just going to attack her, was going to destroy her. Now, when she was trapped in a family and was being attacked, massive amounts of sympathy, but to then translate that learning situation and then project it onto the outside world is not rational. So when you were in your home, yes, you were attacked, you were raped, you were sexually abused as a child, massive amounts, bottomless amounts of sympathy for all of that. But then saying the exact same dangers occur every time I walk out on the street... And, you know, if she lived in America, she could be well-armed or Canada, whatever, right? So that's not rational. Again, massive sympathy, I understand, it's a tough thing to work through, and we're not trying to take away from any level of sympathy, right? Wow, Stefan, really have to suck the enjoyment out of things. <laughs> it's not good for you. Look, you can watch Harry Potter as an entertaining story. It's nothing wrong with that. I enjoyed the books totally fine. But you have to recognize what's being done to your brain, right? What's being lured out in front of you. The idea that you can get something for nothing. You know, I have a piece of chocolate occasionally, but I know chocolate is not that great for me, so I really don't have it very much, right? So, oh man, you're telling me I can't live on a steady diet of chocolate and believe that chocolate is salad, man? You're just sucking all the joy out of things. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm having you enjoy the use of your teeth for the next (laughs) lifetime, right? So... No, reminding you that magic is madness is not taking the joy out of things at all. You can still have magic. You can still enjoy stories, you can, but just know what they are. They're, they're portrayals of madness. I mean, this is superheroes, right? Superhero movies, it's just the new wizards, right? They're just new wizards, new super beings. And superhero movies are there to have you believe that if you don't have magic, you can't have courage that courage is reserved only for magical entities, which means you will be a coward for the rest of your life. If, and this is what, And that's fine if you, you can go watch these movies, just know what they're doing to you. right? You can eat chocolate, just know that it's not great for you in large quantities, right? Or whatever, right? So sugar. Time to... Have you done a synopsis of the first six Star Wars movies? I did some Star Wars stuff. You can look for... Uh, yeah, just look for Star Wars at fdrpodcast.com. All right. So, oh, and in Lord of the Rings is perfect madness, right? Perfect madness. Because not only is there magic all over the place, but the very third book is called Return of the King. Return of the King, right? And everything's great. You see, everything's fine, everything's solved, everything's wonderful. Why? Because Aragorn is king. Yay! Denethor is gone, everything's better, we've got the good kings, and it's nonsense, right, because there were great kings in the past, and then Sauron came along, and then Saruman came along, and then Denethor came along, and it all turned to shit, right? Oh no, but this time, what, is this the end of cycle? It's never going to be bad again? You still have a king, and even if you have a great king, the whole problem is massive, political, concentrated power of monarchical leadership. Oh, it's okay, because a good guy is in the seat of power. The ring is the king. Right? Return of the king is return of the ring. The ring of the king is the same thing. Nobody can handle that power. Oh, my God, Boromir. Oh, you can't have that ring. That's but you know what? Aragorn would be a great king. Let's do that. And the, the pathetic thing, of course, is that Tolkien completely betrayed his own personal ideology because he himself was an anarchist. As he said, not of the bomb-throwing kind, but you know, nobody can handle power. Nobody should be in charge of anybody else. There shouldn't be a state. Betrayed it. I've often thought, when I say often thought, I occasionally will think that it would be unbelievably great fun and about as wonderfully subversive and joyfully subversive a thing to do to have a video game where you restore order to the kingdom by, <laughs> by turning it into a stateless society. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great? Or, or to have a game like Civilization or whatever, and the only way you can win is to eliminate coercive centralized authority. <laughs> In your society. Every time you tried to get the government to work, it always ended up failing. But the only way that you could hack to win would be (laughs) to not have a state. That would be wonderful. So, limitations. When you don't have limitations, when resources are created out of nothing, that is not just an invitation to madness, that is almost a commandment to madness. And think about this in your life. If you could type whatever you wanted into your own bank account, what would happen to your sanity? To put it another way, when we accept infinity of principle... Infinity of property rights, infinity of the non-aggression principle, infinity of, you know, small to limited state and more free market and, and so on, right? When we accept infinity of principle, we, uh, the infinity of principle leads, when you have a state at the center of your society, infinity of principle leads to infinity of resources. Because infinity of principle produces so much wealth that the government can use it as leverage, to borrow, to print, to create, to tax, to create the illusion of infinite resources. And when you have an infinity of resources, the inevitable good that is produced from the perception of an infinity of resources is human, bottomless, rancid rage. And isn't that one of the characteristics of sort of modern craziness that's sweeping the West? Is bottomless rage rage why why is there rage when there is the perception of infinite resources because infinite resources means every problem can be solved you just have to like people enough because you've got infinite resources you can solve the problem of poverty you can solve the problem of racial inequality you can close the pay gap you can you can do anything anything because you have infinite resources It turns human beings into gods, which is insanity for a human being. It's not how we evolved, and it's not the truth of reality. So if you have infinite resources, this comes back to the question of the poor, is an obvious one, right? So if you have infinite resources, why on earth would you not want to give to the poor and help them out? Why on earth? Oh, well, you know, but, if you tax a lot of people to give money to the poor, then you make the poor dependent on taxation, and you take money away from the productive people who create jobs, and the poor end up getting poorer and they have no reason to get additional skills and they 'll neglect their education and they 'll end up having too many kids or not being responsible for their kids, and it's going to dissolve the entire family structure and It's going to create a a voting block that can never be objective on principle because they survive on taxation, right? So you can have, but it doesn't matter because the perception of infinite resources means that every argument based on limitation is asphyxiation. I'm not kidding about this. When you believe in infinite resources, when you have this psychotic fantasy of infinite resources, which is aided and abetted by the state creating and printing and borrowing and all, then what happens is money becomes air. Now, in very rare circumstances, you're trapped under a boat that turned over. You're a scuba diver. Like, you're an astronaut. In very rare circumstances, are you ever worried? Are you, like, have you ever, in your life, been worried about being able to breathe? Because of the air around you, not you know if you have uh, some COPD or something. Hit me with a why if you've ever been worried about breathing. I did once when I was in the Dominican. I was um, skin diving and foolishly swam into a ship that had sunk. And there was a jagged hole in the hull and I swam in because I was following this cool fish. And then when I swam in, I realized there was a current That was going in the hole, and it was very hard to get back out of that hole. And I could, you know, it's the kind of thing 30 seconds you can be dead, right? So I tore the shit out of my arm getting out of that hole, getting back up to the surface, and have been thankful ever since Mm -hmm. and never done anything like that again, right? Lethal gas at work, yes, when you were sick, but when you were sick, it was your ability to process oxygen, not whether there was oxygen, right? So yeah, you go cave diving, right? There's a very big issue. And, of course, if you are a, uh, a high-altitude pilot and, and you're, you, know, you need to get your oxygen and so on, right? Open-heart surgery, yeah, well, you've got to worry about that too. But that's not oxygen in the environment. That's just whether you can process it, right? So when you say to someone, we, want to, we, we don't want to give lots of money through the state to the poor because they believe that money is like oxygen we're literally saying we should deprive the poor of oxygen. That's what they, emotionally, that's, this is why people get so angry and so enraged. Because if you were at a dinner table and somebody was saying, you know, we should just go find a homeless guy and, and, and deprive him of oxygen, you'd be like, what kind of horrible psycho monster are you? Like, I never want to come back to this dinner party and I never want to see you again and whatever, right? And if I ever hear of a Hobo strangled to death, I'm calling the cops, tell them what you said, right, so we perceive oxygen, air, as an infinity of resource, and, and we're right, we don't think about, I mean, I'm standing here in a studio, I don't sit there and say, well, I'm going to check the O2 levels, because uh, if I do one more rant, man, i gonna pass out, I mean, I might pass out, but not for lack of oxygen, right, I mean, I'm in a room, right, there's some ventilation, not much, but I'm fine. <laughs> I have to talk for a long time to run out of air, and you don't think about that, right? You do not think of running out of air now, maybe if you get uh, you're driving along and some giant avalanche goes over your car, then you've got to start worrying about your air, but we don't we don't worry about air. So for people who believe emotionally accept the delusion of infinite resources, when you say let's not have a welfare state, You, they hear you say, let's kill the poor. Let's deprive the poor of oxygen. Because you say, well, why on earth would you not want to give the poor infinite resources? If you have infinite resources, why not help the poor? What, are you crazy? Because there's no cost-benefit analysis. Because they've not been taught that, they don't understand that, the government schools haven't instructed them on that. So it's like, why, look, if you give a poor person air, it doesn't mean you can't breathe. Why, like... Why? It's like, well, you want to put a plastic bag over the head of the poor, right? Choke him out? Like, what are you, what are you psycho? What? You don't want to give women money to, to, to get the pay gap sorted out? What are you, crazy? You want to asphyxiate women? Like, this is the level of rage that comes about when you believe in infinite resources. There's no cost-benefit analysis. There's no limitation of resources. It's just like like if you're walking home with some food that's about to spoil and there's some homeless guy starving to death and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm not giving you my sandwich. You know, the homeless guy says, can I have your sandwich? You're fat. And you look really full and you got Mr. Creosote sauce on your face. And he's like, no, I'm not giving you my sandwich. I'm going to throw it to the girl. No, not even the girls. I'm throwing it into the sewer right by your head. I can't possibly eat it. It's about to go off, but you can't have it. Ha <laughs> ha! Into the sewer it goes. And somebody's going to look at you and say, what kind of psycho? This guy's about to die. You can't possibly eat the food. You can't take it home. It's not going to keep... Just throwing it into the sewer? Like, do you understand the amount of anger that you would have? the The, the perspective and opinion that you would have about someone. If there's infinite resources... Why the fuck wouldn't you want to help the poor? Why the fuck wouldn't you want to give free healthcare? Why the fuck wouldn't you want to help out Ukraine? Why the fuck wouldn't you want to give foreign aid? Why the fuck wouldn't you give free medicine to to the sick? Like, why would you not do any of these things? Because resources are infinite, and therefore anybody who wants to deny any part of those infinite resources to anyone in need is a murderer. In the same way that if you want to deny oxygen to someone, you will kill them. Now, I can think of situations where I would be absolutely sane and sensible to deny oxygen to someone. <laughs> if you and I are scuba diving, we go down, we're down hundred feet or whatever, we can't come up. The bends, right? You've got to rise the speed of the bubbles and all, right? So, don't take my advice about these things. It's been a long time since I scuba dived, but I do remember this. So, if we're both down hundred feet, two hundred feet, and your regulator breaks, your scuba gear breaks, what do we do? We buddy up, right? So you breathe for 20 seconds, and then I breathe for 20 seconds. And we head to the surface because we're, you know, gotta get to the surface. So I would deny you oxygen for those twenty seconds. You would deny me oxygen for those twenty seconds. Why? Because our oxygen is really limited. Why? Because we don't have gills. <laughs> we're down at the bottom of the well, we're two hundred feet down in the ocean, and we only have one scuba regulator between us, right? So the level of rage is that people who believe that resources are infinite view anyone who tries to do a cost-benefit analysis as about as evil as you could possibly be. This is a hard thing to process because, you know, if you're part of this conversation, you're kind of used to the cost-benefit analysis. It kind of second nature to you, right? Which is why... I'm like, yeah, okay, I could maybe see two weeks to flatten the curve until we find out what this kind of thing is, but if this thing goes on, and it likely will because government's programs, although in some places it didn't, right? In Sweden, never locked down. Florida, I think, locked down for two weeks, and and that was it. So if you look at, there's no such thing as cost-benefit analysis, then everything is viewed in moral isolation, which is insanity, completely insane. So when people say we need to lock down To slow the spread of the virus, and that's the only variable in the equation, right? This is infinite resources, no cost-benefit, right? We need to slow the spread of the virus. We've got to lock down. And if you say, I'm against lockdowns because they're propagandized, maybe because they're dumb as a bag of rocks, maybe because they're ideological in some way, or maybe they're just addicted to virtue signaling, which is when you say we should do something nice when it costs you absolutely nothing. There's no cost-benefit analysis involved. So they say, well, we are locked down to to, to slow the spread of the virus. You say, well, I don't think we should lock down. That's all they hear is, I want the virus to spread. (laughs) Literally, that's all they hear. I, for some bizarre psychotic reason, because I'm probably deeply evil... I just want the virus to spread. That's it, right? So, and when you say, well, if we take money from the productive and give it to the unproductive, you will get more unproductive people, fewer productive people, and eventually we'll run out of money. Or, you know, socialism always works fine until you run out of other people's money, right? Or, well, I guess we can spend all of this money on COVID, but then the bill is going to come due in inflation, right? So is it a good idea to give all of this money out to people, you know, tax a trillion dollars and give everyone 1,400 bucks, give a couple of billion to your friends, and then stick it to the poor and those on fixed incomes with inflation? Or I know you feel good about electric cars, but... Electric batteries don't create their own power. You have to get it from somewhere, and that's going to be traditional. Or, well, I know you don't want to drill in the Arctic, but the alternative to drilling the Arctic is really bad regimes around the world get huge amounts of money to oppress their population. So maybe we can move a few polar bears rather than keep everyone in Iran and Saudi Arabia on the beheading block, right? Something like that, right? There's no cost-benefit. Now, when people get addicted to the endorphins of doing good when it costs them nothing, a feeling like they're doing good when then they become drug addicts they become addicted to virtual signaling is is very much a real physical addiction and the cure which means the enemy of that addiction is cost benefit analysis where you say okay how many lives are we going to save by shutting down versus how many lives are we going to cost by 18 months of virtually no health care, at least no preventive care. And all of these electric sur- uh, elective surgeries, and it's a bad word, this elective surgery always driven me nuts. Elective surgeries, everyone thinks it's like liposuction, and, you know, like uh, uh, nose jobs and like, oh, it's, you know, it doesn't really, you know, some cosmetic thing. No, no, elective surgeries is everything outside of ER. Every, elective surgeries is anything that's scheduled, anything that's not, my heart is exploding in my chest as we speak. So, you have to say, okay, so let's look at the data and let's say, okay, how many lives are we going to save with the lockdown in terms of the virus not spreading, if that's even the case, versus how many lives will we cost through addiction, depression, suicide, deferred surgeries, um, uh, murders from people who can't get away from each other, and uh, like all of that stuff, right? So, when you start to talk about cost benefit analysis, you're interfering. with the infinite resource delusion that's giving free serotonin and endorphins to people addicted to feeling good without actually having to do good. Feeling good without actually having to do good. It's a huge addiction. Why is it that we get such a great high out of doing good? Because doing good is dangerous. <laughs> I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this. I mean, my, uh, my family got hunted through the streets in Australia by uh, some feral leftists when I was out there giving speeches and uh, bomb threats and death threats. And I was going to the washroom saying, hope I don't get stabbed. <laughs> so, you know, doing good, speaking the truth, is really dangerous. So you have to have a very big emotional incentive to do it. Now, you can say this is integrity, and so and there's, there's definitely that involved. But I get a bit of a contact high with virtue by doing good. I am mean, straight up with you, I'm addicted to telling the truth to doing good to spreading understanding and so on, right? It's a good feeling. It's a great feeling. So the idea that you can get the ultimate high of doing good at absolutely no risk or loss to yourself, what's cocaine? Cocaine gives you the high, that virtue, that beautiful lovemaking, great orgasms with a woman who's wonderful and so on it gives you that you don't have to earn it well i guess even with cocaine you have to earn it because you got to buy it so imagine if you could just get magic free cocaine people would get enormously addicted to it because the balancing of the high of doing good is the danger of doing good right the fact that if you do real good you harm the interests of evil people who then react with aggression and deplatforming and so on right so so that's the balance, right? And and that's why the high of doing good has to be such an intense high, like, like orgasm, right? Orgasm is where life comes from, sperm to egg and all that. So the orgasm is one of the best feelings in the world because it's hard to achieve and, you know, we evolved with no birth control, so you had to have, you know, hopefully a willing partner. Morally, you'd have to, and so on, right? So... see here Somebody says, "You had a severe reaction to what happened to you in Australia. Do you think that it is genetic given your family history of your ancestors being hunted down for doing similar things? The fuck are you talking about? I had a severe reaction to what happened to me in Australia. <laughs> what are you talking about? Bomb threats, death threats, being hunted through the streets. And I still went and gave my speeches, and I still went and confronted people on TV, and I still did Q&As with everyone, and I still went to the bathroom, and I still traveled, and I still toured around, and I did my fucking thing. Maybe you've not been in the situation where people are trying to kill you and attacking people coming to see your speeches and turning over their buses and throwing giant batteries through their windows... Maybe you've not been in that situation. Until you have been in that situation, don't tell me that I had a severe reaction, okay? Don't even try to tell me that I had a severe reaction. It was a severe provocation. The idea that I had a severe reaction to having my life threatened, to being physically hunted through the streets by having people who come into my venue physically attacked by being called every kind of horrible name in the Australian media, that I had... You're focusing on my, what, severe reaction? No, I went and gave my speeches. I stood up in front of the crowd. I was positive and pleasant and engaging and did my thing. So I think that's a little crazy, my friend, and uh, I don't really even know what to say about that, that I had some kind of severe reaction. <laughs> how about uh, How about the people who were wanting to kill me would that be considered a severe reaction to somebody talking about free speech anyway so just wanted to uh (laughs) i just wanted to mention that that's kind of funny right Uh, (laughs) all right you know go out and but so you go out and do good go out and do good in the world confront the powers that be speak truth to power and you know take all that blowback and then look in the mirror and say i guess i'm just having a severe reaction (laughs) Severe reaction to this. It's just, you know, odd, odd little severe reaction that I'm having. So, it was just a little recurring credible death threat. You're overreacting. <laughs> Talk about gaslighting. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, it was all massively criminal, and as far as I understand it, massively unprosecuted. So, I got to pay my taxes when I was traveling around, but... Not sure I got an excess of protection from the cops. <laughs> Maybe I did, I don't know, but it didn't sound like it. it. didn't seem to be the case. But when people being arrested, when they were attacking, them, we had to bust people out of the cities because it was uh, too dangerous to give a speech in the city, right? In a uh, former free speech bastion of the empire, right? So, yeah, anyway... I don't want to get too distracted by that. And I'm not saying that the uh, question is malevolent, but it's a little fucking jaw-dropping to receive (laughs) that kind of question, just so you know. And I bring this stuff up not because I don't sort of sit there, wake up and huddle in my bed because of what happened, what, fucking four years ago in Australia, but it's a good example, right? It's a good example um, of what happens in the same way that when I was out there in Hong Kong, uh, with marching with the anti-communist, anti-CCP protesters and getting facefuls of tear gas and running through the streets uh, when they were hunting people and spraying them with blue ink so they could identify them later. Yeah, that's um, kind of an intense experience. And when I was, when none of these things were happening in Poland, that was also kind of an interesting experience, which I talked about. And you've got to check out these documentaries, really. I did some great job on these documentaries. and. Um, Uh, you can go to freedomain.com forward slash documentary. So just go to freedomain.com. There's a whole documentaries tab and my three big documentaries on Poland, on California, on Hong Kong are all there. And I look forward to doing more because I'm sure the world is even more inviting now than it was in the past. (laughs) So I just wanted to sort of point out that the infinity of resources makes people insane. Because there's no balancing, no limitation, no blowback or pushback on their desire to get the joy endorphins of doing good. You've given them a risk-free environment for getting the drug of virtue without any of the risks of virtue. In other words, because in the past, there were, we did not evolve with infinite resources. Because we didn't evolve with infinite resources, the do-goodery that we wanted to do was limited by having to survive or wanting to survive, right? I talk about this in my novel, right? In the future, the novel, freedomain.locals.com. A couple of bucks a month, you get it right now. Total, you can get it in the feed, consume it on your podcatcher and all that's wonderful. So, in England... Winter was cold as a witch's tit, right? And worse in other places, right? And so what happened was you would store your food up for the winter and your neighbor maybe didn't. You've got an antigrasshopper thing going on, right? And your neighbor didn't. So then your neighbor would run out of food in February and would come to your door starving and... Hey, maybe you'd packed a little extra. Maybe you could give them a little food. Maybe you could help them out a little, but you couldn't help them out a lot. Why? Because your resources are finite. Because you've got enough to get your family through the winter with a 10% wiggle room. Maybe you can give them 5%. Maybe you can even 10% if you're willing to live on the edge. But if winter goes two weeks longer, you're fucked, right? So you've got your store of goods that you're getting you through the winter. Your neighbor's out of food. Can you help them? Well, you got to balance, right? Because you're dealing with a, a, a finite amount of resources. And so because we have a desire to survive, and that's the strongest desire that we have for most people, because we have a very strong desire to survive, we also, to help out our fellow man and woman and children and neighbors and so on, we get a great deal of happiness by helping other people out. And that's so that we do share our resources. And that's genetic because most of the people we evolved with have similar genetics to us, so help out their genetics is helping out our genetics because there's a huge overlap and so on, right? Particularly in the British royal family. But So we have a great desire to help other people, but it's conditioned by the limitation of the resources. And it's the limitation of the resources that is why we have such a great desire. right? The scarcity of uh reproduction is why the orgasm is is so wonderful right so if you can hack the human brain which has great joy out of helping others so that we overcome the selfishness of just keeping everything for ourselves right so and there's real good tribal reasons for all of that and 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 in particular of course you can help your neighbor out the first time, right? Your neighbor runs out of food in February this year, right? Now, next year, if he runs out of food in February, you're like, you would nag him all summer to get his food, right? And then if he doesn't, it's like, you know, I really don't feel that much like helping you, right? Because now it's just a permanent transfer. It's not like, oh my God, uh, rats somehow burrowed through my wall and got into my food and I don't have the grain and I can't eat it, right? All that, right? Okay, hey, could happen to me, you know, so let's have the slushy tidal wave of resources go back and forth because I'll help you out, maybe you'll help me out next time. But if it's just like, nah, I wanted to learn how to do finger knitting this summer so I just never got around to gathering resources, I need your food, you're not going to help them out, right? You've got to be treat them as adults with responsibility. So when you have an infinity of resources then everyone can get that joy, this emotional orgasm of helping others with no negative, ri- with no risk, no blowback, no scarcity of resources for themselves, no threat to their existence, no threat to their children's future, as they perceive it, right? Of course, there is all of these things, but it's very abstract, and it's very in the future, and blah, 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 right? So the government's, creation of the perception of infinite resources has driven people insane because they're chasing the high of helping others which is a, an enormous and considerable high i get paid in endorphin for what i do although donations are why i can keep doing what i do so freedomain.com forward slash eight if you wouldn't mind thank you so when you get the perception of infinite resources people get wildly addicted to doing to to the drug called doing good with no cost to themselves, and they lose their minds. Because they become so addicted to that drug, anybody who says we must limit what we do, there's a cost-benefit analysis here. It's not a moral judgment. It's not, you don't care about the poor, you don't care about the women, you don't care about the inner city, or anything like that. It's nothing like that. That's just a cover story. The cover story is covering up The basic fact that what they're saying is you are interfering with my drug of choice. You are threatening my access to the drug of virtue by demanding a cost-benefit analysis. See, this all happened with wars. Oh, we're going to help the the people in Ukraine. We're going to help the people everywhere, right? This happens with foreign aid. Oh, we're going to help the poor people. This happens with food aid. Oh, we're going to help the poor people. This happens with the welfare state. Oh, we're going to help the poor people. This happens with subsidies and, and it happens with everything you can conceive of right and so we have a whole swath massive swath of people in society completely addicted to the endorphin of fantasy helping people they don't care about helping people they care about the drug like if you're jonesing and you're you're addicted and you can't get your drug and you go to your drug dealer and you have no money and you laugh at his jokes and you listen to his stories and right, you tell him how handsome... You don't care about him, you care about the drug. You need the drug. It's the second most powerful drug doing good, right? Well, third, after orgasms and survival, right? So... The fantasy of infinite resources turns everything into a drug deal. Well, I, 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 I put a Ukrainian flag in my bio, and I support this, and I support that spending, and I support... And you feel good about yourself. And there's no danger, and there's no cost to yourself. That's not how we evolved. If you wanted to help someone, and you were like a peasant or, you know, 99% of the people, if you wanted to help someone, he's like, hey, man, I need 10 loaves of bread. It's like, okay, well, that's 10 fewer loaves of bread for me. Let me do this calculation. And is it his fault, and is he responsible, and am I helping him, and am I enabling him? Right? So the, the, the joy of helping your neighbor was also limited by your need to survive. You create the infinite resources. This is why I say in infinity of principle is sanity, an in infinity of resources is madness, because drug addicts are mad. They're, they're crazy, right? They lie, they're manipulative, they're aggressive, they're violent, right? Emotional terrorists in general. So... when the delusion of infinite resources turns everyone into a drug addict of virtue signaling, and I mean that literally, a drug addict of virtue signaling, then anybody who threatens the delusion of infinite resources is an absolute enemy who must be destroyed because they're a drug addict. So if somebody says, I care about the gender wage gap because I care about equality and I care about women getting paid fairly, and I care about blah, 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 blah. right? Okay, so the sensible and sane response to that, absent the state, is to say, well, if I want to help the gender pay gap, then I need to hire women and pay them more. You know, people say to me, oh, you don't care about the poor. It's like, hey, man, I've hired like 100 people over the course of my career, gave them paychecks for years. Uh, people started their families, they bought houses with the people that I'd hired in my business career in particular. I've hired some people here too, but in my business career in particular, I've hired 100 people and given them an average wage of $60,000, $70,000 a year, software programmers and so on, right? So uh, that's pretty good, right? Uh, that's, that's not a bad thing to do because that's helping not just them, but everybody else's pay goes up even further, right? So my transfer of wealth to the poor, because I was hiring mostly students and, and so on, right, was about six million dollars a year in, in payroll, right? Not, not even counting benefits and pensions and all of that, but just you know straight up pay. 60,000, 100 people over the course of my career, six million dollars. A year, so six million dollars was me being an entrepreneur, creating jobs and hiring people and and mentoring them, and and they all went on, as far as I know. I mean, most of them, at least the people I didn't fire, only fired a few, but went on to have good careers, and and I helped to to train them and and teach them various skills in business that were more than just coding, because that's what I was doing, is other things as well. So, but if you if you simply say that it's unjust that women are paid less rather than going out and hiring women and paying them more, which would be the way to drive up wages for women, or finding ways to um, help improve the perceived value of women in the workforce or whatever. So, But instead, what you can do, because there's this infinite resources, is like, well, we should just pass a law and women should get paid more. Why? Because it costs you nothing. I mean, that's your perception. The cost is very abstract and diffuse and down the road and all that, right? So the perception of infinite resources takes away the limiting factor in our drive to get the endorphin of doing good, which is personal cost. And then anyone who tries to impose a cost-benefit analysis is cutting off our drug supply, which is agonizing for us. And there's no more agonizing cutoff of the drug supply than the drug of virtue. Because if you're addicted to cocaine, you're probably not thrilled to be addicted to cocaine. You kind of hide it. But whereas the, the virtue thing is like everything. It's public, it's your persona, it's your value to your friends, it's, it's your value in the world, it's your sense of, of being a good person, it's everything. It's not just the drug. The endorphins of helping others that's taken away when anything threatens the fantasy of infinite resources. So, when I say infinity of principle is sanity, reason, evidence, logic, math, science principles of, of reality, that's sanity, man. And the, sa- the, the sanity is that when you... The, and, and the, the, the principle, the, the universal principle, the eternal principle, is that resources are finite. We know that. Resources are finite. So part of the principle of sanity is that resources are finite when you get the principle of insanity called resources are infinite. It drives people mad and their madness takes on both pomposity, van- it's just pomposity, vanity, rage. Pomposity and vanity, because you're getting all these endorphins that make you feel like such a wonderful and good person with no personal cost to yourself and no threat to anybody else. I mean, there is a threat. You want the welfare state, you're threatening the productive with taxes and jail, but you know what I mean, right? And anyone who comes along and says we should go back on the gold standard. Anyone who comes along and says we should limit government spending, anyone who comes along and says there should be a cost-benefit analysis or provides, points out the downsides of government spending. And this is the big battle that they sort of want to end up on here. I'll get your thoughts just before I close off here. But this is, this is the big battle with crypto and, and Bitcoin in particular. It's because Bitcoin is limited. Bitcoin, when people finally understand that Bitcoin is going to shatter the illusion of infinite resources then they're going to launch a jihad, so to speak, against Bitcoin. Once the people addicted to feeling good without the risks or limitations of doing good, once they realize that uh, Bitcoin, or the gold standard for that matter, but Bitcoin is infinitely more likely these days, once they realize that they will actually have to do good with their own money, with the risks of angering evildoers by doing good, when they realize they're going to actually have to earn, they're going to actually have to earn their virtue endorphins. (sighs) And that they weren't actually doing good. They weren't chasing virtue. They were just chasing the high and was enraged at anyone limiting their access to their drug or threatening their access to the drug that instead of serving virtue they were serving evil instead of serving on the side of the angels they were serving on the side of the devils there's going to be a huge emotional blowback all right any thoughts on this we've got a couple of minutes before we close off Let's see here. I'd love to hear your take on the challenge of successful people finding a balance between facilitating and supporting children's goals and over-supporting. Yeah, well, so when your kids are young, you pour everything into them and then you've got to step back when they get older. Like my daughter's doing all of this. She writes plays. She gets friends of hers to act them out. She animates them. She's done like two-hour movies. She's just fantastic at, and and to me, I love the stories. I think they're great, right? So I, I don't you know, I'll help her a little bit if she wants me to act in, in one of her uh, plays. I will I will do that, and um, I'll give her some feedback on the story as a whole, but just get out of the way. Just get out of the way. They're fine. Because, you know, every time you step in and show a kid how to do something, you're saying, I don't think you can do it, right? So I just, if she wants feedback, I'll give her feedback. Um, I don't say that I'm right. It's just my thoughts. So you you pour everything into them when you're younger, and then... When they get older, you just step back and you're there available as a resource, which hopefully I'll be for the rest of her life or my life, right? So, oh, somebody says, my grandpa, post office, grandma, school district, father, army, aunt, library, aunt, two, job core, all infinite resource, imagined jobs. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's see here. It's the next, the next chapter of the book, The Future. I'm sorry I didn't get to it today. I, I was actually talking about this at dinner with my family. It's like, ugh. You know, I did a two-hour call with someone to to help them out. Somebody who literally, this, this, this show, and this is through your support, right? Your support of this show saved this guy from killing himself. Like, that's what he opened with. He's like, I was really about to kill myself. I was going through such terrible times. I read one of your books. I read RT, uh, Re- Real-Time Relationships, The Logic of Love. I read Universally Preferable Behavior, Now he's a brilliant guy, got two master's degrees, gone for his PhD. He's going to do great things in the world. You and me and we together saved someone's life. Thank you for giving me the option to do that anyway. So I did that and uh, then I did some exercise and I may be overdoing it a bit on exercise these days. But um, I did some exercise and then um, I had some dinner and then I just came in and did this. So I'm afraid I don't have a chapter for you today. But yesterday's chapter was an hour and a half. Uh, and it was really a challenge to uh, to read, because it's very uh, well, it's a very philosophical chapter, so uh, keeping that interesting and engaging is is a real challenge. So I'm afraid I will have a chapter for you tomorrow, and it's a chapter that will seriously blow your gourd I, I I absolutely took all barriers away from my imagination in imagining the world of the future. There is absolutely nothing that I put any limits on. I gave myself well, an infinite playground. Because, you know, when I, I've written a lot of historical novels. I wrote one about 19th century Russia. I wrote one about Europe from 1915 to 1940. Uh, I wrote uh, um, uh, uh, another historical novel about the agricultural revolution in England. And so lots of limitations. You're limited in what happened in the past, right? But man, in the future, when you're creating utopia, when you're creating the most perfect world that can, can rationally exist, no limits, baby. No limits. Wish I could listen to it all at once. Sci-fi that answers real questions. Uh, I think, honestly, it's, it, it's such rich literature that I think taking it uh, day by day, taking the bit by bit, is probably, uh, probably a pretty good, pretty good idea. And um, uh, certainly the people who have read it, um, who have been very kind to give me positive feedback, and uh, I haven't really received any negative feedback as yet, which is fine, and maybe they just haven't heard it, but they are saying that... Uh, uh, listening to each, listening to some chapters multiple times is the best way to go. So, I don't think you'll miss much. And this is, you know, it's how Dickens would release his novels was in serial form. So, but yes, you should. Um, let's see here. I really, really miss your truth about. Please bring back. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So, if you like the truth about fdrpodcast.com. dot com. Just do a search for truth about, and there's hundreds that I, I guarantee you've not listened to all of my truth abouts, and so you absolutely could uh, go back and listen to them as well. Don't forget to go through my books and so on. Ukraine, there's nothing to say. I said this on Wednesday. There's nothing to say about Ukraine for me. There's nothing. Philosophy is all about prevention. And I said this uh, back back in the day, that the plus of uh, Trump was uh, no war, and, and people listened to the media. They chose a... Swamp creature, they got there. Now they have the war. So, I mean, there's nothing to say, right? You missed the analysis? No, it's an, in, honestly, it would be an insult to philosophy to talk about the manifestations of anti reason in this way, right? Like, it would be an insult to nutrition to think that a nutritionist can help with a heart attack. Why would you want negative feedback? It's not a draft. Oh, no, I would want negative feedback. I would, I mean, it's not. It's not It's not been printed and distributed to all the bookstores in the world as yet, and there's still things that could be changed. I'd be happy to get negative feedback. And even if it's not for this book, negative feedback could be very helpful for the next book. Because this is the first novel I've written in 20 years. And as you may or may not know, I started out as, well, I started out as a novelist, poet, and playwright in particular, wrote like 30 plays. And uh, so, Alberta Lockdowns, War Measures Act in Ottawa. Oh. Sorry, it's just not interesting. I mean, if if my fellow Canadians want to vote in a guy who admires China, well. how long has the future taken to write? I'll tell you that. Um, I will tell you that when the book's done. I think it would be an interesting topic. I mean, I'll do a whole roundtable with people who've read the book and talk about the book um, when it's done. And, and I actually want to do a book um, book club for my other novels because... Um, Particularly Just Poor, which I just recorded chapters 20 through 75 or something not too, too long ago. And I've been listening to it again and uh, it's uh, really something. So the future took basically 40 years to write because it's everything. It's everything uh, that I've been talking about in a concentrated form with wild imagination as the spice the sugar that helps the medicine go down, so to speak. So, yeah, just go to freedomain.locals.com and uh, grab the book and all of that. Somebody says, I didn't mean to sound terrible when I made the statement. No, listen, I, I don't mind. Uh, tiny negative feedback. You use decimated in the modern sense as opposed to the original meaning. It irks me just a little. Now, when I hear that, I hear the decimated thing. I understand that controversy, but this book takes place in the future. Well, it's the future... The present and the incredibly distant past—it's a three-for-one novel. We got the future, we got the present, and we've got the incredibly distant past, and how they all interact. So, uh, yeah, sorry about that, but I don't think—I don't think the original meaning is coming back. No, it's fine. That's fine. I appreciate it. And listen, I'm, I'm sorry if I got uh, too annoyed about this uh, thing, but uh, if people say I'm overreacting to having my life be threatened and people that I care for are attacked physically, and I don't know. Some put in hospital. I don't think you can have too strong a reaction to that. Um, I think that the strong reaction is someone talking the truth and getting uh, attacked without the protection that you pay for. All right. Thanks, everyone. I'm afraid we're out of time. We've got 90 minutes here on freedomain.locals.com, a great, great platform. I hope that you will join the community. Remember, it's not just about me. There's tons of premium podcasts, the book uh, that's out at the moment. And... um, It's a community. You can meet other people who love philosophy and think clearly. So thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful weekend. Uh, Maybe talk to you Sunday. And uh, good night. Goodbye. Take care.